Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 4, book of Acts chapter 4. It's a book of church history. How God worked within the first century church among those first believers. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12, the apostle Peter says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So it doesn't give us many options, Peter says. No one else, no other name must be saved by this name alone. Resurrection Day is the day that Christians have celebrated ever since the original resurrection when Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, each Lord's Day, every week, is a celebration of resurrection power. And as the Apostle Paul is praying, one of the things he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, we begin to see after the resurrection. Jesus talks a lot about his death and resurrection. But after the resurrection, everyone who knows Jesus talks a lot about his resurrection. Because it is the empowerment of everything about about our lives But resurrection, the story of resurrection, the idea of resurrection doesn't begin with Jesus' resurrection. It doesn't begin at the empty tomb. It actually begins in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And so for those of you who are here every week, you know when I start in the book of Genesis, it's going to be a big one, right? No, we're not going to do all of that. But In Genesis chapter 3, just to catch us up, God has created all things. And the Bible says at the end of creation, everything he created was good. And after he created man, it says he looks at his creation, and it was very good. And so God gave the garden to Adam, and then he gave Adam only one rule. And God warned him of the consequences of breaking this one rule. Seems simple enough, right? Obey the rule. So why would God create man and then give him the option to sin? You see, for Adam to be able to choose to obey God, there had to be an option to choose to disobey. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. For Adam to choose to obey, there had to be another option. To choose disobedience. People ask the question, Well, you know, did God create evil or why did God create evil if he is good? Because there's only one way to know what is good and that is to compare it to something. Now, an evil God would create evil and not warn us. But God allowed it to be and then he told Adam, don't eat of it. Every other tree you can eat. But remember, everything God created was what? Good. It wasn't the tree that was the problem. God didn't create an evil tree or evil fruit. God created the capacity for men to choose. And then he told man what his options should be. It's a good God in every element of this story. 
This is not an evil God setting men up to fail. This is a good God that gives us options to choose to honor him. So it wasn't the fruit. Everything God created was good. It was Adam's rebellion that God had to curse. And he told Adam, if you eat of the fruit, you will what? You will surely die. But it's not the death that we anticipate. Because Adam ate, Adam chose, and did not surely die that day. Adam, you see, was made in the image of God. And Adam was set apart from the rest of God's creation because Adam was born out of God's spirit. The moment that Adam rebelled against God, Adam's spirit within him died. From that moment, Adam did experience a death, but it was a spiritual death, a cutting off from God. And at that moment, his body also began to processes of dying. And so everyone that is born of Adam has been born with a dead spirit. Every person that's ever been born of man has a dead spirit. And without a live spirit to connect us to God, being in the image of God, there can be no communion with the Creator without a live spirit. So humanity itself has been cut off from God. Now an additional part of this curse was to the serpent who had planted the original doubt in Adam and Eve's heart. And, and Genesis chapter 3 says that God would put enmity, division, uh, animosity between the serpent's seed, the, the, the future of the serpent, and the woman's seed. And one day, one day, the, the, the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed, but the seed of woman would crush the head of the evil one. So... From Adam and Eve, the wait began, waiting for the promised one who would come from woman. We know that the curse is the woman's seed will produce the promised one. So half of humanity, half of humanity is now where we're looking. And then all of a sudden, we kind of hone in on Abraham, and we find out that the promise is given to Abraham. So now it's a descendant of Abraham. And then later, it gets down even more restrictive, down to it's going to be from the throne of David. And so we, things over time begin to get more and more clarity to that. Okay, now he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and now it's going to be this. And now we're looking for clues for 4,000 years, waiting for the one to come who will redeem us who will allow us to have a resurrected spirit so that we can have communion with the Father. So all the prophecies predicted exactly when all this was going to happen. And in the fullness of time, Jesus is born, and he fulfilled every ancient prophecy. Jesus was also born of a virgin, it's interesting, and some people say, well, what difference does it make if we really believe that kind of stuff or not? Well, it's very important because everyone born of a man has a sinful nature. Jesus wasn't born of a man. 
Jesus was born of a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't have a carnal sin nature like we do. Jesus as a man can experience temptation, but Jesus in his deity can withstand it. And he can choose not to give in to temptation. Oh, he understands it, but he also understands how to overcome it because Jesus had a live spirit, the spirit of God in him, and was able to overcome every darkness and every distraction and every obstacle, taking everything back to the word of God and to the glory of God the Father. It's what uniquely qualifies Jesus to be the one that we've been waiting for. And so Jesus was perfect in every way. He lived perfectly, spoke perfectly, acted perfectly, loved perfectly. Jesus was not a slave to the flesh because he had the spirit also quickening. We, on the other hand, have a dead spirit that is silent. And when we make decisions, we process this life that we have, we're a slave to do whatever the flesh tells us to do. And so we walk in darkness, looking for someone who can set us free so that we can have communion back with the Father. But it was Jesus' perfection that threatened the way of life for the religious who came into contact with Jesus. He also offered a different way of processing uh, life uh, for everyone else who came into contact with him. The sinners, the broken, the left out, the addict, the rejected, the hurting, the betrayed. Everyone who had an issue found that issue settled in the life of Jesus Christ. And so the very people who should have recognized who Jesus was and, and the very ones who have been longing to see him born and should re rejoice that the wait is finally over. It was the religious Jews. But it was the Jews that called for his death because he threatened them in his life. If you remember, you go through the entire story of Jesus' life and there is never an accusation that sticks. Even the accusations from Caiaphas to Pilate were all lies. Herod said, I don't see any reason to kill him. Pilate said, I find no fault with him. The thief on the cross said, remember me. Over, Jesus never even defended himself because there's nothing to defend. The, the soldier at the foot of the cross says, surely this is the son of God. Even in his death, the testimony of perfection was clear. As Jesus is being nailed to the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My point is, is that Jesus was uniquely qualified to pay the consequences and the penalty for our sin. He alone satisfies the payment to be reconciled back in communion with our creator. In Jesus alone can we live and exist eternally with God. There is salvation nowhere else but Jesus. But if all Jesus did was die for our sin, that's good news. But it's incomplete news. 
If all Jesus did was die for sin, good, my sins can be forgiven while I'm here on earth. It's good to know that you can walk in forgiveness and it's a terrible thing to walk in shame and guilt, to walk around with a hardness of heart and the baggage of previous decisions. That's a difficult thing to walk through or maybe even abuse, things that you go through that you didn't ask for, things that you did do that you knew better. To walk around carrying that stuff and to know that Jesus can satisfy the weight of that is beyond miraculous. But if we still die and go to the ground, what difference does it make? So the cross is important. His death for our sin is important. But it was Jesus' resurrection where we can experience our own resurrection. You see, it's not the Father's will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And it was Jesus and Jesus alone that made the way for salvation. But when you accept Jesus as your Savior, in that very moment, God himself gives you a gift of himself. And the thing that set Jesus apart from the rest of creation, he puts right inside of you the Spirit of God that quickens your dead spirit and you're able to experience your own resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus empowers everyone who claims Jesus' resurrection. The same spirit that breathed into Adam life breathes into us life. That's why Christians call it being born again because that's exactly what happens. I had breath into my lungs when I took my first breath, but spiritually the spirit breathes into me and we are born again. Again, a second birth. And now we are no longer slaves to the flesh. Now when my mind or my heart is tempted to go the way of the world, I have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God speaking into me, giving me empowerment to choose the glory of God the Father. And I'm no longer a slave but a son. We regain everything that Adam lost, a resurrected spirit, all because of Jesus, and He is the only way to receive resurrection. So, all those who have resurrected spirits will live eternally with God as His children, but those who reject Jesus and those who die with dead spirits will still live eternally, but separated from Him and separated from hope in the lake of fire with that old serpent who hell was created for and all of his demons. It's surprising to read the resurrection account of Jesus because those of us who've been in church for very long, it's, it's, no, it's no mystery. The resurrection is such an important part. When you go back and you read it after the fact, it's really, it's really hard to miss the resurrection in all of Jesus' teachings. But those who, those who walked with Jesus certainly missed it most of the time. The, the most evaluated and judged and yet found to be the most accurate book in the world gives us several gospels with completed details on this same story. So Jesus was clear. His disciples were a little... You know, with Jesus' mission, they were a little blurry. They didn't fully understand Jesus, and that becomes very clear at his death, burial, and his resurrection. Their first thought wasn't on that first resurrection morning, oh, his body is gone. He's risen just like he said he would. They assumed, in fact, just the opposite, that someone had entered the tomb during the night and maybe stole his body. Remember, that's what Mary 
Saul, when she saw the empty tomb, she wept and she told the angels, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him, if you remember that. Resurrection was the last thing on their mind that morning. But it didn't take them long to be warmed to the fact, especially when she turns and she sees Jesus. They begin to connect all the dots and eventually each one of them begin to have encounters with him. And it didn't happen suddenly. And for some, it probably took days for the hundreds of followers of Jesus to to finally believe. But soon the truth hit home. Jesus is alive. And hundreds of people saw him risen. First, they whispered he is alive behind closed doors and then they begin to preach it in the streets he's alive and then finally they take it to Rome itself he is alive back to Acts chapter 4 several weeks after the resurrection of Jesus Peter and John are on their way to the temple and they met a crippled man and he asked them for some money and Peter replied with these very famous words Silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. It's in Acts chapter 3. Man stood up in that moment, completely healed. He began walking, he began leaping, he began praising God. And the crowd gathered because this man had been here for a while. This was a tremendous testimony that Jesus had done some things like this, but now those who follow Jesus are doing some things like this. And Peter began to preach to them in quite a lengthy sermon there in the street, challenging them to repent of their sins and to accept Jesus because he was the only way to true salvation. Now, when the religious leaders had already had Jesus Killed, and now they're hearing about this Jesus being preached by his followers. They had Peter and John arrested, and they were detained overnight. Now, in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, tells us that the rulers were greatly annoyed, perturbed, grieved, disturbed, because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, no doubt this refers to some of the Sadducees who did not believe, this was a group of Jewish religious folk who did not believe in a bodily resurrection. And so anytime they talk about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, they try to shut it down. And so I I learned the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees uh, were Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, so they were sad, you see. (laughs) The Pharisees looked down their nose and far I see okay so I know that one's a little worse but if you remember Sadducees you can remember Pharisees were hypocritic and arrogant and all those sorts of things but they were angry and it wasn't it wasn't the healing of the crippled man it was they began to talk about the power of the resurrection in Jesus name that was the thing that caught their attention Dangerous teaching like this couldn't be ignored. So the next day, they brought Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. That's the Supreme Court of Israel. Now, they were ruled by Israel, I mean by Rome, but the Sanhedrin were allowed to have court and enforce the Jewish Jewish laws. In Acts chapter 4, verse 7, it tells us that the Sanhedrin asked these two apostles a very leading question. Here's what they said. By what power or what name did you do this? 
What a question. By what power or in what name did you do this? What's Peter going to do? Well, let's look back at Peter's track record. I think Peter probably has three options. Uh, The Peter that we know is probably going to say, I don't know the man. No, I don't think he's going to make that mistake again. Peter has experienced true transformation now. The second thing he could do is say nothing and just kind of hope for the best. I mean, Jesus never defended himself. Peter has never not said nothing. This probably isn't an option. The third thing that Peter could do is he could seize the moment and preach the gospel to the Supreme Court. Never going to have another opportunity like this again. Let's begin reading in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter answers the basic question. Who did this? Jesus did. That's how you know Peter might would take the credit for it. Pre, pre-resurrection, Peter might have said, I did it. Jesus gave me the power to do it. No, you need to know Jesus. Jesus did this that you see here today. But wait a minute, Jesus is dead. No, 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 no. <laughs> you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. It is he and by his power that this crippled man that you have walked by for years has been, has been standing So in this really brief sermon, Peter says at least four things. You crucified Jesus. God raised him from the dead. His resurrection provides power for brokenness. And number four, you rejected God's only means of salvation. Now, what may not be clear is in verse 11 is actually a quotation from Psalm 118 verse 22. So Peter is quoting the Old Testament that these Pharisees and the Sanhedrin knew very well. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus himself used this exact same passage of Scripture, Psalm 118, verse 22, when he gave the parable of the the landowner just a couple days before before his crucifixion. If you remember that story, it's the landowner leases out property to the tenants to care for all of the vineyards. And he goes on a trip. And in order to to have some of the produce brought to him, uh, he sends some of his servants to to take care of the tenants and to get his part of this tenant farming uh, uh, plan. But when they get there, the tenants actually murder all of the servants of the landowner. So what does the landowner do? He sends more servants. What do the tenants do? They murder all of the servants. And so finally, the landowner says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they'll accept my son. What do the tenants do? They kill the son. 
And Jesus uses that as an illustration, and then he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it is God who did this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So Peter's quoting Jesus, who's quoting the psalmist. In fact, this passage of Scripture is quoted five times in the New Testament. In the book of Matthew, where Jesus is telling this story, it says, Jesus continues and says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. But I want you to listen to this. And the one who falls on this stone, this cornerstone of God, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. This is a very, very important prophecy that Jesus gives here. The image comes from this ancient quarries where these highly trained stonemasons would carefully choose which stones they would use in construction of buildings and for what purpose they would serve. There wasn't a stone a part of the building process more important than the cornerstone because the integrity of the whole building depended upon the cornerstone rock. If the cornerstone was not exactly right, then the rest of the building would not be right. If it wasn't in line, nothing else would be in line. Everything else was built from the lines of that one stone. And for that reason, the builders were very particular. And they inspected many, many stones. And they would reject each one until they found the one they wanted. Now, Greek is a very detailed language. But this word cornerstone can mean one of two things. It can either mean cornerstone or it can mean capstone. And for all of you stonemasons, I'll go ahead and let the secret out. The cornerstone's the first stone that lines everything out. And the capstone is the last stone that locks everything in and bears the weight. There's not a word for each of those in the Greek language. It's the same word. It means, it means the, 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 the stone in the corner. Whether it's the corner here or the corner here. It just means the one that builds everything or the one that locks everything. And I think both of those things are true for Jesus. And in the original language, we're not really sure. Maybe he meant both of those when he uses these words interchangeably. Because he does align our life with his salvation. And there is only one way that God has chosen for us to build. And it is upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And he bears the weight and locks it all in. Now these rejected stones, they might be used in other parts of the building. They might become a part of the process but not the cornerstone or the capstone part. They were the first and last stones put into place. So Peter is saying that Jesus is the stone that God chose to build life and eternity on. Salvation, therefore life, is to be built on Jesus. But when given the opportunity, humanity rejected the stone and said, we have a better way. His alignment doesn't line up 
with our alignment. That's not necessarily the way we want to build. And so he became the rejected stone. But God not only accepted Jesus, but he put him in the position of highest honor. So regardless of what man chooses, God's choice is the only one that matters. So if you don't choose Jesus and you reject Jesus, God doesn't judge you based on what you chose. He judges you based on what you didn't choose. Because there's only one. The rejected stone was the only qualified stone by God. But it's rejected. Jesus said, some will fall on him and they will be broken. And the good news is, for those that fall on him, those who lean on him, Those who fall into him will be broken and he will make them new. He will fashion them in and remake them. But for those that the stone falls on in judgment, they will be crushed. And that word is very similar to the crushing of God's promise from Genesis chapter 3 where Jesus, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. prophecy of Jesus comes to pass today too. There are those who recognize the rejected Jesus and they fall on him in brokenness. What does he do? He remakes them into the image of the Father. He gives them a new spirit. He gives them a new heart. He gives them a new direction, a new path. He gives them purpose. He gives them hope. He gives them joy and he fills them with peace. But there are others who outright reject Jesus too. And when judgment comes, they will experience a crushing, an eternal crushing. The word actually is interpreted a pulverizing powder. So this crushing or this grinding into powder is the same penalty that Satan himself will experience. It's not a penalty saved for humanity. It was a penalty saved for the serpent. But what Jesus is saying is very clear. You either align with him or your alignment is with Satan. People say, how could the good God make hell and then send people to it? A good God doesn't. A good God says, here is the cornerstone. Here's how you build your life. Choose him. He died for us. This is a good God who all all fingers point to Jesus. A good God doesn't send people to hell, but an evil people choose to serve Satan over God. You say, wow, Pastor Satan, that's a big step. Is it? Is it a big step? If there is one cornerstone, and if it doesn't align with Jesus, it's anti-Christ. It's not another way, a different way, an alternative way. I think this message really stuck with Peter. I think he liked it. He uses it a lot. And and so here I am 2,000 years using it, so I kind of like it too. But I want to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I think it may be on the screen if, if you don't have your Bibles with you. But in, in Peter's epistle... He says, as you come to him, a living stone, he said, 
What Peter does is he, he takes those sermon notes from Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4, he puts them together. Now he's a living stone, the, the, the resurrected cornerstone, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Listen to this, verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, a stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter ties obedience to the word of God to the receiving of Jesus. If you receive Jesus, you're going to be obedient to the word of God. When we were disobedient, we are rejecting the cornerstone and therefore we are building on something else. So when we, when it comes to like obedience to the word of God, we're either obedient to it and that's proof that we're aligning with him or if we say, well, I choose Jesus, but I'm kind of doing my own thing. Or I choose Jesus, but I'm not really all in. Or, or Jesus is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of. Listen, to claim Jesus is to honor his word and obedience. This larger passage actually begins the chapter before. I'm not going to read all of that. But Peter reminds them in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, that since we have received Jesus, we have been given immortality and we have been, our souls have been purified and our, our hearts have been purified, which is the, because the Spirit now is speaking into our, our hearts and is purifying us so that we can inform the flesh and we can walk in obedience to God. So he continues in chapter 2, tells us that since this is the case, we have to move forward as we build this new life in this new spirit. We have to figure out what is it, how is it we're going to build this new life that God has given us. He says we got to put away the old ways and we have to desire the pure milk of the word. In verse uh, 4, he tells us that we begin building this new life by laying a, anybody want to guess? A cornerstone. Receiving this cornerstone from God. We don't even have to pick it. God has already pointed it out and handed it to us. So Peter reminds us in chapter 2, verse 6, he's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 28 that this stone is chosen carefully and it's precious. Of course, it's not really a cornerstone. It's Jesus. It's Him. In verse 7, it tells us that only those who believe are going to see the value. Say, well, I'll accept Jesus. I'll accept Jesus once I'm convinced. Once I value him. But you see what, what Peter is saying here is you only those who say yes to him can begin to understand the value of him. 
said, wait a minute, you want me to say yes to Jesus before I accept, before I approve Jesus? Not exactly. I want you to evaluate him. I want you to put him to the test. I want you to examine his words. I want you to see the transforming of, of people's lives through, the, through, through uh, the ages, to be able to put him to the test and see. And once you see that Jesus is really the one, you can say, you know what? He is the one. I say yes. And over the course of your life, you begin to value Jesus and honor Jesus more and more. Sometimes it's about making the right choice, not the emotional one. The emotions should follow the rational. And Jesus isn't just an emotional choice. Jesus is a rational choice. But those who do not believe are divided into two categories, according to Peter. Those who consider him and reject him like the one Psalm 118 is talking about. Rejected by the builders. They looked at it, examined it, put it to the test. Don't like that one. And then those who overlook it and trip over him. Those that are, he's a stumbling block or an offense. But notice the same, that both options, whether you've examined him and said, no, I don't want that life or you've not examined him at all, you're going to trip over him the rest of your days. Maybe he's a threat to a way of life that you want. Or maybe his demands are just too high and you're not willing to pay it. Maybe there's an unwillingness to surrender to his authority or maybe you feel betrayed by him because there's so much pain that you've endured. Whatever, whatever it is, you're evaluating Jesus and saying, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want the Jesus option. Or maybe you're just hoping that maybe by not making a choice, that'll be your choice. I'm not really going to deal with Jesus at all. I'm not going to deal with any. I'm just going to live my life. Maybe there is no God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, he actually quotes Isaiah 8, 14. You didn't know Peter's quite... Smart when it comes to the scripture. He's quotes, he's quotes the Old Testament a lot. That describes the stone of God as a cause of stumbling and an offense. And these two words are very, very interesting. I'm not going to break them all the way down, but the word translated offense is the same word translated stumbling block in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. It, it, it's originally meant like a tripwire or something that catches you off guard, something that surprises you. It's not, uh, it's not like a, a big boulder that you stumble over or try to navigate over and fall off it's it's more of a of a of a of a spring wire that you didn't know was set for you the word stumbling describes tripping over a stone or impediment in the road some of you i did this just just last week at the 5k listen this is how this is i used to be an athlete i know i know but a long time ago i used to be an athlete and uh played everything and uh, I didn't run the 5K because I was, you know, I was working it. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, I, I tried to step up on the curb, and I just about fail because <laughs> it wasn't even a curb. <laughs> that's, how, that's how athletic I am now. There was a, it was a ramp. I was standing right in front of the ramp, and I saw the curb down there, and I thought, I'll go ahead and step up, and I just about fail. Who has, who has fallen over not a curb? <laughs> 
Both words describe the, the unexpected, the surprise that causes a fall. And I'm telling you this morning, in fact, I'm begging you, disregarding Jesus is going to cause an eternal trap to spring and those who reject Jesus for whatever reason are going to stumble right into hell. And some are going to completely disregard Jesus to their own de demise. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus rejected in both ways. Some, some consider him carefully. This is not the Messiah we're looking for, right? The various groups make up the religious establishment all through there. You see the Pharisees understand, the Sadducees understand, the scribes, the, the, you know, the experts on the law, the priests. They, after they investigated him, they said, nah, we're not interested. And then you have others like Pilate or Herod or a pre-converted Saul who overlooks Jesus entirely, trying to disregard him. Nah, there's nothing to see here. And their unbelief was a result of their willful disobedience. But either way, rejecting the stone turns out the same way, whether it's intentional or whether it's unintentional. An overlooked Jesus is a person's eternal downfall. Okay, back to Acts chapter 4. I'm almost finished. To the, to the Sanhedrin. Peter plainly says, it was Jesus who did this. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. How could the name of Jesus heal the crippled man? Jesus is dead. No, no, no. Jesus is resurrected. And the proof of his resurrection power is just by the mention of his name, this man is able to get up and walk. He's the living stone of eternal salvation. The resurrection of Jesus gives us insight and faith regarding how it's going to end in the end. Jesus has already overcome death, hell, and the grave. And for those who trusted Jesus, we have a pretty good clue of how the end is going to work out. Resurrection teaches us that when death or evil one comes to torment us, we already have the one who has overcome in victory. There's going to be difficulties that arise in life, battles to be fought, darkness to overcome. But Jesus has already defeated death, hell, and the grave. His perfection allows him to satisfy the wrath of God that hangs over all of the fallen humanity. And he pleads and he begs for all who will to come to him. Jesus' perfection, he took on our sin. He died a miserable death but with his resurrection, he took on perfection again. And when we receive Jesus through the Spirit, he places his nature right inside of us so that we can begin to walk with Jesus' nature instead of our own. We no longer have to walk in Adam's nature. The future may not be perfect, but we will overcome if our faith is in the one who rose from the dead. Because he is in us. He guides us. He informs us. He empowers us. Every other life built on anything but Jesus cannot last. And the foundation will slowly even crumble. And it's going to cause brokenness. And it's going to cause heartache. And it's going to, it's going to create emptiness. And ultimately eternal defeat. That's what it means to call Jesus the living stone. It gives us courage to face our own life and our own death because we have his instead of ours. So 
God has made Jesus the first stone laid in our lives. And he has made Jesus the last stone laid in our lives. And Jesus and Jesus alone is perfectly and uniquely qualified to be both. That brings us to verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. These words, words sound strange, and they sound harsh in an age of tolerance and diversity and political correctness. Surely Peter didn't mean what he said, did he? That Jesus is the only way? Peter said it. Jesus said it. The Father has said it. He is the only Savior that God has, and only through faith in Him can you have His nature and be in communion with Him. You can't reject Jesus and have any hope of heaven. You can't look at any other leader for salvation. You can't combine Jesus with anyone or anything else. We're not free to make up our own plan. And we certainly can't save ourselves. So we have to come to him on, our, on his terms, not ours. We have to evaluate. We have to say, listen, I'm... And, 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 and many Christians do this, and this is, the, this is the tolerant thing for us to do now. And, and I'm certainly not teaching intolerance. I'm just saying Jesus isn't just a stone that you can say, I'm choosing Jesus to be a part of what I'm building. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the capstone. He's the stone that locks in every other thing in life. He's not just another stone. And the proof that he is the cornerstone is your life begins to look like his as you build it. And I love that, Paul, that Peter goes one step further and he says that all of you who put your faith in Jesus Christ, we are all living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone and each one of us are all building blocks, creating the thing that God is doing. Locked into each other, becoming one with each other, the building in the household of God. Today, if you're choosing anything other than Jesus, I, I beg you to choose Jesus only because he is the only means of salvation. He's the only key that opens heaven for those God created. He's the only remedy to be back in communion with our creator. And today, if you're just flirting with the world and whatever seems best, I beg you, evaluate Jesus on Jesus' terms. Don't evaluate him by the Christians you know. Don't evaluate him by the churches you've been to. Evaluate Jesus and you'll see. You'll see that he is the living, resurrected cornerstone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the day today. We ask that your spirit do what no speaker can. I pray that you very quickly could connect all of the dots.
pray that you will give insight to us, that you would give us by your spirit a measure of faith that could believe. I pray that you would soften our hearts enough so that we may say yes to you. I ask, Lord, today that we at least have to wrestle with these things. I thank you for the continuity and the consistency of your word. And I just pray that we who have an opportunity this day to make a decision about it would choose what you have chosen and we would build our life upon your foundation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you you stand with me this morning, please? I I know the room is tight and I know there's not a lot of, it's not easy to navigate a full room, but if you, if you would like to come to the altar and, and just pray, maybe there's something you'd like to pray through or maybe you'd like to talk to somebody about choosing Jesus. Uh, I, I, would, I mean, that's, that's why we're here today. So if there's any, any opportunity, if the Spirit is speaking to you right now about making a decision to follow Jesus, I beg you, don't put it off. I want us just to kind of be, be just think about your own circumstance. My eyes are closed too, by the way. But I... I want you just to think about where you are in a relationship. Where you are and what it is that you're hoping for or trusting in. Whether you're standing on shifting sand or whether you're standing firm on solid rock. If there's a decision that you need to make, I... I urge you to make that. Maybe Jesus is just another stone that he's a part of your building. But he's, you're not building on him. You're just building with him. And I'm telling you, your building, your building will, not, will not last. And it may, it may last until your last day, but it will not last into eternity. I urge you today that if you're building on any hope other than Jesus, he is the only hope. And it's a good God who tells us that. It's a good God that in the southern United States, we can know that with such clarity. It's a good God that has preserved his word and left us so much evidence. Lord, we thank you for the day, the ability to just pause for a few moments and reflect. And I pray that as we go, we would continue to mull over these words from your word and we could evaluate properly that cornerstone and choose whether or not we reject him or build on him. There is no other option. 
So Lord, help us to be wise. Pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to convict us, direct us, and to guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.